Hello once again and welcome to the second episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you closer to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson and I'm a ranger at Hampshire Countryside Service. I'm here with my co-host and fellow ranger, Carly Harrod. Hi Andy. It's definitely a bit colder today than last time we recorded. Today we're coming to you from Hook with Warsash Nature Reserve near Southampton. I mean, really, it's quite a beautiful day. It's lovely and calm, not like last week when it was actually chucking it down in rain and blowing a hoolie. <laughs> no, it's much nicer today. So, Hook with Warsash is a local nature reserve on the Solent Coast. It's a mixture of grassland and wetland habitats, and it's got reed beds, scrapes, lagoons, ponds, and island systems. So, it's perfect for the overwintering waders and breeding waders in the summer. There's also lots of other things that live here, such as reptiles and water voles. What have you seen while you've been here, Andy? Today, just a few birds, I think, really. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. I mean, reptiles clearly are in hibernation at the moment, yeah, and it's getting that time of the year when everything's shutting down in some ways. So the islands here are really important for the birds, aren't they? Well, the little ones on the lagoons yeah. out there. Yeah, it's a lovely little refuge because we, we're going to be talking about the birds a bit later. But uh, yeah, it's when the tide comes in, they, they've got somewhere that they can go and rest up and sit on the water and on the, on the islands away from any disturbance while they wait for the mud to be uncovered again. And one of the things the rangers do that look after this site is that they have to recharge the islands every few years. What's that, plugging it in? Yeah, <laughs> plugging it in like you do your phone. No, so recharging means they are built back up to keep them above the high water level line. Yes, that's right. So I mean, slowly over time, those little islands that are in the little ponds out there uh, slowly break down and fall back into the water. So you, what they do is they take shingle from elsewhere and then they put it back on top. So it gives them a nice little bare surface to, you know, shingle banks and things like that. They can sit and rest up. That's brilliant. So I actually spoke to Hannah, one of the site rangers, to find out a bit more about this process and a bit more about the site. So we're here at Hook with Warsash with one of the site rangers, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hiya. So can you tell us a bit about Hook with Warsash? Um, so Hook with Warsash is a local nature reserve on the Solent Coast. Um, it's got quite a variety of habitats. We've got um, lots of woodland and grassland, but down here on the coastal section, um, within all of our grassland, we've got lots of lagoons and shingle scrapes and things like that. So lots of different habitats around here. And what are these um, shingle scrapes good for? The shingle scrapes are really good for um, overwintering wader birds particularly. Um, they like them as high tide roosts. So when the tide comes in, it provides them somewhere to say somewhere safe to shelter um, while they're waiting for the tide to go out so they can go and feed again. So looking at this scrape in front of us here, there's quite a few islands in the middle. How do you create the islands? Are they, are they natural? Are they man-made? So they're mostly man-made. Um, every few years or so, they, um, they erode through weather um, and usage. So we top them up with more shingle um, every, I don't know, seven to ten years or so. Cool, that must be a hard job. It's a big job, that one. Yes, a very big <laughs> job. And how do you manage the grassland surrounding these um, coastal areas? The surrounding grasslands, um, primarily with conservation grazing, so we get cattle on them, 
um, for a little bit in the summer. They keep the scrub at bay and they, um, they create different structures in the grass which allows different wildflowers to come through at different times of year. This site seems like it's really important. Has it got any special designations? The four main designations down in this area of the site um, are um, Ramsar sites, which is an international designation for wetlands, um, a special protection area, a special area of conservation and a site of special scientific interest down here. So it, it's a very important area and um, highly protected. So how do people um, come down to this area to see the birds, Hannah? So the, the area itself around the lagoons it, um, is really, really fragile. So it's all fenced off, but you can, from the seafront and the footpaths around the outside, you can look over into the reserve. Um, it's particularly good um, with binoculars and telescopes, but you don't need them to see the birds because they're relatively close to the fence line. So it's quite important that we don't disturb those birds, isn't it? And we we'll talk to BirdAware Sonant in a little bit about that. Um, yeah, but that's why really we um, and that's why we want to keep people to the paths on this site. Absolutely, yes. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to us about the management down here at Hook, and we hope lots of people will come down and visit. Yes, that would be lovely. Thanks, Hannah, for that information. This site is really worth a visit. I love coming down here, especially at sunset. It has the most beautiful sunsets. So, Andy, within the service, you're known as the Birdman, and we all come to you with our questions on birds. But what got you into birding? I think probably the thing about birds is that, unlike most wildlife, they actually almost go out of their way to let you see them. They fly quite openly, you can get them coming into your gardens, they almost shout at you when they sing and they're very evident. It's quite difficult when you're looking at things like reptiles or, or mammals, you know, to, you've got to do some proper searching. See, I quite like plants because they stay still. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I was about to say birds are more interesting. I shouldn't really say that, I suppose, but they do turn up at all sorts of times and periods. When's the best time to see birds? Well, any time really, because that's the thing, they do go throughout the winter as well as summer. You'll get a change, because like all the, all the summer birds are now departing. We've seen a couple of um, swallows today, and they're probably setting off pretty shortly for Africa. Mm -hmm. But then you've got like a change in the season, all the winter thrushes, like red winds are coming across. And of course, all the migrant birds who come down to the Solent, all the geese and the waders. So you can see different things at different times of year, but there's generally something to see every time of the year. So we're really lucky down here on the Solent, aren't we? Because we get such an influx of birds in the winter. Oh yeah, I think you can take it for granted. There's some fantastic places to go and see birds in Hampshire. So for our second episode, we're here today with Julie and Miranda from BirdAware Solent. Hello, my name's Julie Sims. I am a ranger with BirdAware Solent and I've been a ranger for about two and a half years. Hello, my name's Miranda. I'm a seasonal ranger with BirdAware Solent and I started in September. So Julie, you're a BirdAware Solent Ranger. What exactly is BirdAware Solent? Yeah, I am. BirdAware Solent is an organisation made up of local councils and conservation bodies around the Solent. And they've essentially come together to ensure that overwintering, uh, migrating, wading 
birds, ducks and geese um, are protected. So what we do is we help people to enjoy the Solon Coast without disturbing the thousands of uh, wading birds that come here. So you, although you, you work with the countryside service, you don't actually work on the countryside service sites alone, do you? No, no, we work all over the Solon Coast. We actually cover over 200 kilometers of coastline and we also work on the north of the Isle of Wight because we look after birds that are using the, the coastline, so uh, the ducks, the geese and the wading birds. The birds that love to feed by sticking their beaks in the mud. So clearly they want to come here. I mean, why is it so special here? I know it is, it's quite special here and m most people don't realize that, but um, these birds breed uh, north, some as far as the Arctic Circle, some in Northern Europe, and the winters get incredibly harsh up there. So when the food source for them disappears because of the change in season, they migrate to the Solon Coast where they find a very rich abundance of food um, and also places to rest. So uh, salt grass, marshes, uh, mud, it's all got an incredibly rich source of food for them. So you're saying some of these birds come from the north. What sort of birds are coming down here and where are they coming from? So one of my favorites is the Brent goose um, and we, we can see hundreds or sometimes even a thousand of them at a time here in the Solent. So um, it's hard sometimes to realize how special they are but this is a protected species uh, whose population numbers are decreasing but 10% of the world's population comes here to the Solent coast. So this is why we see loads of them even though they are actually quite an endangered species. Um, however one of the things I find is that a lot of people uh, don't realize that the Brent goose is different from the Canada goose. Um, Canada geese are not protected, they don't need any special protection, they, there's loads of them. Um, they are bigger, louder geese. The Brent geese are smaller and they also have much less white on their faces. So that's usually how I tell people to tell them apart. If you look up and you see a goose with loads of white on its chin, then it's a Canada goose, also if they're being super loud. Um, a little bit of white on just under their chin, uh, that would probably be a, a Brent goose, which is the, the protected species. Um, and we do try really hard to look after the Brent geese. Fields that they use for uh, roosting are protected by law because they are such a special uh, species. And I'm sorry, you asked me about loads of birds and I just end up I ended up going on about the Brent geese, but we also get um, curlew is also one of my favorite. They have a very haunting call. Um, the curlew is easily recognizable be because it has a downturned, very long downturned beak that they use to dig up uh, lugworms uh, from the mud in, in uh, muddy shore habitats. Um, there's oyster catchers, which are distinctly black and white birds with very red beaks that sort of looks like someone stuck a carrot to the end of their noses. Um, so those are fairly easily recognizable and, and I, think, I think they're amazing. Um, they can actually adapt the shape of their beak according to what food source is available for them. So that's amazing. And I, I could go on. There's just, there's dozens of uh, wader species and there's also ducks and geese. We've got widgeon, which is a, a kind of duck. And there is uh, teals, which are also a kind of duck. The thing about bird watching is that once you get into it, it's a bit addictive. <laughs> And it's lovely because once you start noticing the birds, you will sort of always notice the birds. And I think that's what's happened to me, basically. And now this is why I'm in this job. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a few birds there. There's like the, the curlew, um, and I guess it's named from its call. And then the Brent goose, 
I think it's Old Norse or something like that. It's a corruption of burnt because they're quite charcoal coloured, aren't yes, they? Yes, they are quite charcoal coloured, that's true. Yeah. And the oyster catcher, the one thing most people don't know about oyster catchers, they don't really catch oysters, do they? No, I mean, they can, but most of the time they eat things that are sort of easier to get into. And it, it, it really depends on the food source that's available for them. So they will go after whatever's easiest, path of least resistance. Um, mussels, invertebrates, all sorts, I think. So we're talking about all the mud they love feeding into the curlew, dibs into the mud to get lugworms. And, but all that is high tide at the moment. Mm -hmm. All that mud and salt marsh is covered by the sea at the moment. So where are they now? Yeah, so um, at high tide, the birds go and find something called a roost. We call it a high tide roost. It's essentially uh, a place to rest undisturbed until the tide drops again and they can go back to feeding. So high tide roosts, um, they're really important because if the birds don't find somewhere to rest undisturbed, they can waste all the energy that they just gained feeding by f having to fly away all the time. So these high tide roosts are very important to their survival overall, especially on very cold, windy, rainy days when they really need to conserve their energy. So, I mean, these birds, high tide, they gather on these roosts and places. So what are they actually doing there? They're just resting, essentially. Sometimes they do it in fairly large numbers. So you can get high tide roosts with hundreds of birds, multiple uh, species on them, because these birds do find safety in numbers. But essentially, they're just trying to conserve as much energy as possible uh, before they have to move again. Although some roosts will have, you know, three, four birds on it, and that's just as important as one that has many more birds. They'll use uh, boats, pontoons, fields, anywhere that they perceive to be safe. So when you're out doing your patrols, because you patrol through the winter, do you? We do. We patrol October 1st to March 31st, because that's when um, the species that we look after are here. Yeah. So what are you actually doing? Because you, you say you're trying to reduce disturbance of the birds. Um, when we're out on the coast, our rangers engage with people. And one of the main things we do is try to get people to notice the birds. Because after doing this for two years, I've realized that many people don't realize they're sharing the space with sometimes hundreds of birds. Uh, and I've had it where I've shown people a flock of sanderling in my telescope, uh, spotting scope, and they are completely amazed. And sanderling, of course, they're little gray birds on a little gray beach often with a grey sky, and you just don't know they're there. Um, so that's one of the main things we do, is just try to show people how, how many birds are on site, and then we talk about what disturbance is and how they can protect those birds. Um, and what I generally say uh, to people is that disturbance is anything that causes a bird to walk away or fly away. And even if they stop feeding and put their heads up, that, that is also potentially the start of disturbance. Um, so if you keep that in mind when you're out on the beach recreating, to give them enough space that they don't feel they need to stop feeding or walk away or worse, even fly away. Um, it's quite tough to um, sometimes to understand that because we're so used to birds flying. We think, well, that's fine, that's what birds do. And often people think, oh, it's beautiful when they fly. But if that happens too often, which unfortunately it, it is happening more and more often simply because there are more and more of us on the Solon Coast than there ever used to be, um, then that does have a detrimental effect because they can waste too much energy. And that means that sometimes they don't make it through the winter um, or they don't have the strength to migrate back. Sometimes the thousands of kilometers they need to fly back um, or they don't have the energy to breed 
even if they do make it back to their migrating grounds. So it can have a, a lasting effect on the population um, if these birds have to fly away to get away from people recreating on the coast. Yeah. So you were talking about the people actually noticing the birds. I mean, it's clearly birds. They're designed to be camouflaged. They don't want to get eaten oh, by anything else, yeah. really, don't they? Um, so birds, it is, it is quite unfortunate because if you don't take people into account, it's great to be camouflaged because you don't want to be found out. You know, if you're on a high tide roost, you don't want a predator to notice you. Um, but now, with so many people on the coast, it would actually help if these birds were brightly coloured, for example, because then we might notice them more. Um, and as I think humans have trouble um, connecting with something if they can't actually see it. So one of the things that our rangers do is, is try to create that emotional connection between people on the Solon coast and the birds that are there. I mean, people love nature and the people that I speak to, they, they don't want to harm nature. They want nature to thrive. They want the birds to be here for their children or grandchildren. But there's um, sometimes just a lack of understanding of what the birds need to survive. So hi Miranda, you're another one of the BirdAware Solent Rangers, but you're quite new, aren't you? Yes, I'm one of the new seasonals, so I'm just here for the winter period. I started in September, did lots of training, and now I'm out on the coast. So what sort of training, are we, do you do some bird ID training and stuff like that? A little bit of that, yeah. It's, it's also about just how to talk to people and, um, you know, what kind of things we want to say and how to build a rapport with people that we meet out on the coast. So you definitely want people to come and talk to you, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. I'll, I'll be lonely out there on my own. So if you do see one of our bird birdware rangers, come and say hello. Great stuff. Um, so what sort of birds are coming here now? I mean, they haven't seen many today, but what, do you know what sort of birds are coming here at the moment? Uh, so we've got lots of birds coming from the further north um, in the Europe and Siberia, sort of places like that. Um, Brent goose are just starting to come in. And we've got uh, curlew as well, dunlin turnstone lots of the little cute ones that you see around feeding on the uh, feeding on the shoreline i think we take for granted how fantastic hampshire is for some of these birds you know because if you go to other areas you haven't got this massive resource of mud and all the stuff they feed on Absolutely, um, yeah. got the isle of wight to thank for that i think yeah it protects the coast doesn't it and stops yes. all the mud washing away because if you go further down to dorset because I think you've worked, yeah, I mean, you've, you've worked in Dorset recently, didn't you? Yes, yeah, I worked down in Swanage, yeah, and it's much more, much more gulls there and, you know, sandy beaches, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that bulk of the Isle of Wight on the other side of the Solent, it stops all this salt marsh washing away, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly, so we're very lucky. So some of the, we, so some of the Brent geese and that, they're coming 3,500 miles, aren't they? That's right, yeah, all the way from Siberia. And some of the chicks, they've only been born months ago and they're suddenly flying these thousands of miles to get to the UK and other places. And, you know, think about a baby, human baby at that time, they can't do anything. <laughs> so I'm in awe, really. Yeah, I mean, it's really quite amazing, because you can see actually family parties of Brent Goose in the same field that clearly travelled down together. Yeah. Um, some of the other birds, like um, uh, Bartel Godwit, now they're a, a wading bird, a bit like the curlew, but with a straight beak. Yeah. Uh, but they breed in Iceland. And actually the adults leave before the chicks do. So they're left on their own. They're left on their own. Yeah, so, they, so the adults, once, they're, once the chicks are independent, the adults will leave and fly down. And it's a few weeks later when the chicks t turn up. That's amazing, isn't it? How do they know where they're going? Well, absolutely. They do come back to the same places, yeah. which is really quite amazing. So we had a look a bit earlier out the pools behind the seawall. Um, can you remember what we saw there? Uh, there were a couple of cormorants there doing their sort of traditional standing with their wings out, sunning themselves. Um, there was some widgeon as well and some teal, lovely teal, um, yeah.
So the teal are the smallest ducks, aren't they? Yes, that's right, yeah, and they've got a lovely teal-coloured <laughs> eye stripe, which is a good way to identify them. What about the widgeon? Widgeon, uh, they've got a sort of brownish head and a sort of greyish body. There's not many of these birds around at the moment, they're only just starting to build up, aren't they? That's right, yeah, I've, I've seen quite a few brent geese at Langston Harbour, but and the rest of the waders are all sort of making their way over now. So, um, yeah, early days still. So do we know how many numbers? I mean, how many brent geese do you know? Uh, in the thousands. So in terms of not disturbing the birds, is there anything, any sort of guides to how people can help with that? Um, well, mainly just look out for the birds when you're out and about so you know where they are. Um, and just try your best not to disturb them, really. If you see a big group, try and avoid them, try and stick to the paths. Move further away if you notice that they do become alert, if they look up or if they're moving away from you. Um, stay on the paths when you can and, and follow any signage that you see around as well. So that sounds like really useful information. Where, where can people find this sort of information? So this is all covered in the Coastal Code. You can find that on our website or you can come and chat to us when you see us out and about. Thank you to Julie and Miranda for talking to us about the great work BirdAware Solent undertake. We hope you have a much drier season than last year because I hear it was quite wet last year. So Andy, what's your favourite bird? Well, that's a difficult one because you try and narrow it down to one or two birds but I mean, it depends how you're feeling and what you're seeing on the day, I think. Um, certainly amongst them, um, red kites are really, a lot of people see them in Hampshire, they're more and more in the south of Hampshire. They're getting much more um, spottable, aren't they, over here? Yeah, and they're such graceful birds. They're the size of a buzzard, but long, narrow wings and that beautiful long forked tail. Mm -hmm. And you probably see them when you're driving anywhere in Hampshire these days. Um, there's also the firecrest, and that's a beautiful little bird. I mean, Is that our smallest bird? Yes, it is, yes. People think about the wren. Uh, being very small, but firecrest, along with its cousin, the goldcrest, they're half the weight of a wren. Wow. Um, and um, but firecrest, they've got this. Um, they're about. They are pretty similar to goldcrest, but they've got this black and white eye stripe, and they're called firecrest because they've got this um, sort of feathering on the head that, when they open it up in display, it's almost like the head's on fire. <laughs> My favourite bird is probably the long-tailed tit because they look like little pink balls of cotton wool and they just sound really cute but I also do like the sandling that Julie described earlier because they just look so they look like they're having so much fun running in and out of the waves all the time even though they are really hard to spot we've learnt all about disturbance and how this can impact on the on birds survival what do you think the most important bit of the coastal code is I think it's probably being aware of what's around you and appreciating that there are things sharing that space with you um, and um, I think it also engages you more when you're looking for things as well. So if you're seeing things suddenly flipping up in front of you or you're seeing a group of birds sitting around, give them a little bit of a wide berth. Carly, have you heard the statement before that ducks don't quack? Well, they do quack. Probably the best thing to say is that most ducks don't quack. Okay. Uh, because the thing is that your domestic ducks uh, the ones that people have in the farmyards, they're quite close related to the ducks, more often you get your duck ponds, which is the mallard, and they do quack. Mm -hmm. um, but most other ducks either whistle or they do little grunt calls, and actually some of them get their names from those whistles and calls. Can you do any impressions, Andy? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so a teal, we saw teal earlier, when we were talking about to Julie and Miranda, um, and they do a little <whistles> call. Did you hear that? Yeah, do it again though. <laughs> yeah, the teal do a little <whistles> call. Okay, so they sound like they're whistling at someone. Yes, yeah, and the widgeon, they actually get their name from it because it's more of a 
And you can imagine that turning into a wee-oo, wee-oo, or widgeon. Okay. It's a bit like the curlew. It's named after its call of cuckoos and stuff like that. Now, I also know that you do a really good impression of an eider duck. Yes, I mean, there is a little population of eiders in the Solent, but you more often hear them up in the north, um, up around the north, north coast and up into Scotland. And they sound like nosy neighbours. They do a sort of, ooh, ooh, <laughs> which is really quite endearing. That brings us to the end of our second episode. Thanks for listening to Looking After Nature, the Hampshire Countryside Service podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and check out our other social media pages for more great information. And if you missed our first episode, you can listen to it again. And we really appreciate it if you rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Howard. See you next time. Mm-hmm.